hello to be young, gifted black and female followers. Thanks for tuning in to episode eight. This is a very special episode eight, Living Through History. I had the pleasure of sitting down with my mom, Patty, and my aunt Laura to discuss their journey as educators in the segregated Mississippi South, as well as their journey after segregation as educators. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss all of the history that is shared as we start Women History Month and close out Black History Month. All right. I believe the recording is pending. I'm going to wait. Okay. Our recording has started. Um, Thank you, everybody for joining us today for this very special episode of the P. Michelle podcast. Um, Joining me today, I have my wonderful mom, Patty Ward Odom, and my amazing aunt, Laura Ward Claiborne, joining us today. And we're going to talk about just their trajectory as educators um, growing up in rural Mississippi and excelling in a time pre-civil rights movement, pre-Brown versus Board of Education, and just their experience in navigating um, the education system after those uh, changes came about through the civil rights movement. Um, And I want to start with, and either one of you ladies can go first, um, I think we should honor on Laura's journey since, you know, she kind of paved the way for you, mom. Um, Yep. So we'll, I'll turn it over to Laura first for just talking about going to school during the time in which you did. I know schools were still segregated during the time that you attended school. So what was your primary school, elementary school, high school experience like, and then the road to college? And then I'll also Um, ask the same question of you, mom, because I know you were kind of in the middle of Brown versus Board of Education. So what was your school experience like in the 40s, 50s, 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 60s? 40s, 40s, 40s. yes. I actually went to a one-room schoolhouse for the first through the eighth grade. We were all in one room. I I was trying to think about it this afternoon when I knew I was going to talk. I don't remember where we got our books from. I I really don't know. I don't even remember if we, how many books we had, if we had individual books. I tend not to think so because I know we got the leftover books from the white kids. But when we were in that one room schoolhouse, I don't really remember what we had. But I have to say, I think that was a good experience, the one room schoolhouse, because you could hear all of the classes. You know, I could listen to what was going on in grades way ahead of me. Also, they used us a lot to work with the kids who were younger as we got older. So I really think, as I, I, I can't complain, I think that was a, a really good system. And I had <clears throat> had three three teachers, I think. That's all I can remember now, that I had three. One male, not so good, but two females that I thought were very good. 
I don't think any of them, I don't think any of them had gone to college or if they had, they hadn't gone very long. They just had a high school education. But the fact that they really worked with us and they gave us all that they had, they gave us the best of what they had. And those of us who were willing to take it in did. So I, I really can't complain about that experience. And then I went to high school and, you know, when we moved, uh, they they consolidated, they got rid of all of those one-room schoolhouses and we all went to Scott County Training, which was in Forest, which is the city nearest us. And that experience, I was a lot, I, I had managed to run through that um, elementary school quite young. So my high school was totally focused on studying because everybody was older than I was. But what we had was the books from the white kids. We could we could see their names would be in the books. Their what they their notes would sometimes be on the side pages. But the thing that made it good or bad depended on the teacher. Because I had one social studies teacher because back then you really couldn't talk about the civil rights movement if you wanted to keep your job, but he would find ways because even then, like we didn't have a radio. So, and of course that was before TV. So we didn't know what was going on, but he would find ways to let us know. And the, the only problem with that was if you had somebody in the class who went home and told their mother and the mother went home and told the person she worked for, then he would have been in trouble. But to my knowledge, nobody ever did. But he would sneak a lot of information in to us at that time. Okay, I'll let Pat give you hers because ours was totally different. The 12 years made a big difference. Yeah, no, and I and that's what I said. I think y'all would be a good um, conversation to start this because y'all's experiences, while, you know, in the same family, same household, just the timing of yeah, which you came totally through was just going to make it totally different. Right. And then, Mama, after you respond to this question, I am going to um, ask y'all just a little bit if you can remember about Grandma's educational experience, because I know that she did go to high school, as far as I remember. But, Mom, go ahead okay. and talk about your experience. Okay, my experience was totally different from hers because mm -hmm. I started first grade in the new building i think maybe it was the first or second year that the building was open and i spent all 12 years in that one well kindergarten wasn't in mississippi at the time but i spent all 12 years in that one school building uh the school building had burned but my class was the first class to start first grade in that new building and it turned out my class was the last all black class to graduate from that school. So um our class is it the same name? It it was E.T. Hawkins High School. And after integration was forced in the fall, I graduated in 1970. Integration was forced in the fall of 1971. So I went off to school. And I'm not really sure if they immediately changed it to Hawkins Middle School or they made it Forest Middle School and uh, 
a few years later changed it to Hawkins Middle School. But I want to think they did it immediately because Mr. Hawkins had been there since the early 40s. And he had been, you know, that one principal for all of those years. And I think they may have just gone ahead and honored him and named it Hawkins Middle School when um, segregation took place. So um, being in that same one building and progressing through the years was a totally different experience that Laura had because by the time I started, there were at least two groups for each grade level. And when we got to, I guess we considered maybe from sixth to seventh grade, you know, from elementary to high school, then we uh, we were divided uh, pretty much along career paths, you know. By that time, they knew who should be put on a college path and, you know, who would be put on like a vocational path. So my experience was just totally different. Yes, because can I jump in here? Go ahead. Yeah, it was it was only I it was 23 in my graduating class, and that was all of us. We just had to, when we from the ninth grade through twelfth grade, it was just one group. In fact, in the whole high school, it was just one group. It was one uh one ninth, one tenth, one eleventh, and one. 12th grade. We were not divided. We all had the same thing because uh, there were so few of us. It was just 23. I don't really know when they had more than I was gone by the time they had two or three groups like Pat had. For us, it was just like 20 or 25 per, uh, per grade level. Do you know, Pat, how far uh, I had no, I don't. Because, see, you graduated in 56. I started in the fall of 58. That's when you started first grade. I started first grade in fall of 58, yeah. See, we were never in school. Pat and I were never in school together at all. I was in college when she started. Yeah. Yeah. So, good point. Um. Before I touch on like how it was determined who went to school, because I know you guys went at different times and my mom just mentioned like vocational training and different tracks. Um, and Aunt Laura, it wasn't really like that for you guys. It was just kind of going to school. Can y'all just talk a little bit about um, grandma's school experience? Like how did she have access to school? How much time did she spend in school? And how was it decided when she was coming up? You know, Patricia, I don't know. I, I, I have to be honest when you said that. I don't really know. I I don't know. Do you, Pat? I do. Okay. She, you talk. She did. At that time, she finished eighth grade. And, uh, but she would often mention sometimes they went to school three months out of the year. Sometimes they went six. That depended on the work because most of the people in the area were farm workers. So it was centered around the things that, you know, went on on the farm and when they could have the time to go to school. But she did go, she did finish eighth grade. But also keep in mind, at that time, the black teachers were qualified to teach after eighth grade. 
because I know Laura graduated with, with many of the people that she went to school to as teachers. And even I know about some of my teachers graduating from Jackson State, you know, after they've been teaching 20 or 30 years. Yeah, so the reason I asked about that, I just watched Sounder this weekend and got to see just that um, experience with uh, Cicely Tyson and that family in Sounder and like the farming and the school. And I know just conversations that I had with grandma, I know she played basketball at some point um, yes, she did. when she was in school. So that's why I was curious. Um, and I guess finishing through eighth grade would be considered finishing upper school at that point when she, because I do want to clarify for the group. And I try, I try to tell people all the time that my frame of reference is a little bit different than most people in my generation, because my grandmothers were both born in 1913, which is not too <laughs> far after um, 1865. So I just like to point that out for people um, on a regular basis. Um, also, so Patricia, you might point out that we, Pat and I are the grandchildren of a person who was born during slavery because our grandfather was 75 when he married our grandmother who was 19 and he died in the, what, 1924, I believe. It's, it, it's, right. it's difficult even for me to think that as old as I am or as young as I am that my grandfather was actually born during slavery. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and that's, and that's the thing for me, like just framing it. I always, I often think about just how close I am, even though, you know, I'm only 37, something like that. <laughs> um, but, um, so yeah, so we touched on it a little bit, um, just Brown versus Board of Education and the impact. And I think mama, this will probably be more relevant to just your school experience because uh -huh. it happened right after you started school, but then you still experienced a segregated school. And like you said, segregation was forced in Mississippi in 1971, even though laws had been passed way before that. So you could talk about your uh, experience too in Michigan, because I know you left to go um, teach in other places. So if y'all could talk about just before board, and after board. Okay, I'll go. For me, it was very interesting because we, our school was sheltered in a way. We graduated, like I say, in 1970. They knew that all Mississippi schools would be forced to integrate that fall. We as students didn't know, but apparently the administration and everybody else did because we would have like our homecoming ceremonies and all of that. But then in the May, we would have May Day and we would have a May Queen and just a whole little celebration in the spring. And for some reason, all of that was changed and combined to the fall homecoming celebration, which we had no idea why, you know, those things were going on. And, um, in our schools, the high schools have group pictures for the classes. And my class never received a group picture because you know they were they were hung in prominent prominent place in the hallways. And our class being the last class, and it's like, you know, we're not going to get this display of 
a totally black class in the school for this year. Um, and also, um, there were a lot of little things that as my classmates grew older and we started having reunions, we discussed some of the things that went on around segregation that we didn't realize were happening because of segregation. But um, when my class graduated, there were 38 of us and more than 20 of us went to, went on to higher education. There were maybe about 10 or 12 that went to four year because quite a few of us went to Alcorn, several went to Jackson State, we had one to go to Southern. But um, there was also a business school in Meridian that had just recently opened for Black. And uh, we had four or five that went there. So, um, you know, it was highly encouraged that you don't stop with that high school diploma. Whereas, you know, once uh, things became integrated, uh, it wasn't encouraged as much. And um, there was a community college nearby. And as time passed, most of our students were steered more toward that community college, which was at that time was called a junior college. Well, I, Patricia, was in college in, uh, and I graduated in 61. And I, we, I taught in Mississippi for three years and then I moved to Michigan, which was an experience in itself. I'm always curious though about those classmates of mine and I've in all these years, I have not talked to anyone who actually had to go through the process of going from teaching in an all-black school to teaching in an all-white school. Now, I've had I've had talks with people who left. I have a, a friend here now. Her husband was a coach, and he was given a choice that he could be the assistant coach when he moved over. And they came to Detroit. So I, I can imagine that would have been a, tr a pretty uh, traumatic experience to me because it was kind of traumatic for me when I came here because my first teaching assignment was at an all-white school, at all-white kids. Oh, I think we had four kids in the whole school at the time. And believe me, that was an adjustment for me to make it was it was it was kind of difficult, but I hung in there. And Can after you talk about that a little bit, like what was it like being from Mississippi, this black woman teacher with a degree teaching all white students? That was not, believe me, it was not easy, Patricia. And I remember one of the principals told me, uh, an assistant principal told me. I had the wrong voice. I don't quite know what that means. But <laughs> <laughs> and now you know. <laughs> you sound I, like a black woman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the kids, uh, I didn't, I really did not have a lot of problems with the kids. It was uh, a, the school was in a, on the border, uh, it was, 
the school itself was in a poor neighborhood, but some of our kids came from uh, further out, the white kids, and they were a little more tolerant than some of the poor ones who lived in. But what happened in 1967, after the riot, that school was all white. When I went there, when we went back in September, uh, they had lost so many students that they had to lose three teachers. And I was, you know, I got transferred to another school, which was black, which was a wonderful experience. But that school went from, because of the riot, went from all white to all black within a year. In a school and, year, that's interesting. It's also interesting. Eventually, I ended up at a high school, Mumford, as a librarian. And they have all of the, Pat's talking about the class pictures. They have all of the class pictures. And if you go in and look in the class of 1967, it's all white. You turn to 1968, it's predominantly black. And by 1970, it is totally black. The, the people, white people just moved out of Detroit and that's, it became, uh, all of the schools are as segregated now as those are uh, more so than those in Mississippi. I think they're more segregated than that than the school where Pat teaches, to be honest. Well, I need yeah. to speak to that because what happened in Mississippi, in most towns, uh, you had maybe five, six real kind of metropolitan areas. But in most of the towns in Mississippi, you had one school. So what they did, they had an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school. Most of the time, the uh, black high schools were converted to the middle schools. So you didn't have any other choice if you were in public education. You were integrated. But then that also meant that there sprang up all of these private schools if you didn't want your, uh, you know, your children going to school with the black kids, you sent them to the private schools. People lost their homes and land trying to send their children to the private schools, keep them going to school with black children. Because if you were in public school, that was it. You were integrated. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that you bring that up. Hey, Laura, I'm gonna pause so you can go turn your light or lamp on so we can see you better. Oh. But no, I just read an article about um, the building, like school construction, and how it promotes segregation further, even now today, just because, you know, they're responding to the housing boom and they're building houses in these suburban areas and, you know, the white flight of the cities and just how the resources are allocated. Um, I had to discuss that in my interview for grad school, but it's like interesting to hear and discuss that being played out. Um, and it's kind of stuff that I've made assumptions about, you know, just being the child of educators and just being in and around education. Um, and I Ayla, you brought up a good, good for you. Huh? I can break that down real good for you. That's why North Scott has, at the time North Scott was built, it was a beyond anything black schools had been before. And the same thing over where East Scott was built uh, was beyond because they went through 
separate but equal. They wanted to keep us separate but have equal facilities. So they went around building these brand new facilities with everything so that they could say they are providing equal facilities for us. That's why Northcott is in the middle of this black community at the time, which was a very nice school. Same reason, same thing with Eastcott over mm -hmm. at Lake. So they were, that was the result of Brown versus Board of Education. They're gonna get, get around that by providing equal facilities. And also during that time in Mississippi, their facilities were being neglected. So in order to build the new in response. So, and that's that's kind of what the article talks to and gives like some suggestions for moving forward. Um, but you guys brought up, um, and Aunt Lyra brought it up a little bit, talking about the riots. I wanted to talk about the civil rights era and like how it impacted your work as an educator um, and how it connects to what we're experiencing right now. Um, and as mentioned, for those who just joined us, um, my mom and my aunt are 12 years apart. And because of their gap in age, their experiences are vastly different coming up in Mississippi. So that the civil rights era from each of your perspectives, because mom, I think you were quite young in the civil rights movement, but Aunt Laura, it's highly likely that you might have marched with Dr. King at Jackson State. So let's um talk a little bit about your civil rights era experience. Okay, Patricia, you know Mississippi then we were they censored everything. When Mega, I was teaching in Mississippi when Mega Evers was assassinated. We did not know about it until about four or five days later. Mm. It was not on that they didn't. It was it was not on the local TV. They censored it out. We got it by phone call. That was how we heard. And a lot of the civil rights movement, a lot of the things that happened, I'm gonna be honest with you, I found out later through history because being there, they censored what we what we saw, what we heard, what they let on TV and what they did not let on TV. And when we heard Megan Evers, it was like, I don't remember what the days were, but it was days later before we even knew about it because they, they didn't put that, you know, they had the ability to not put it on and they didn't because that there, there were no black reporters. I, that lady asked Pat, what's that black lady that was on TV? Maggie Wade. She was one of the first ones. And when did they hire her? Long after I was gone. In my lifetime. In the early 80s. Right. Yeah. right. That was the first time they had a black person. Oh, I I came home. I went home to Mississippi and I'm like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? There's a black lady on TV. That's right. Her name was Maggie Wade, if you can believe it. But a lot of that we did not know. They kept us from knowing a lot of what was going on. It just was not you know, it was just not told to us. It was just not broadcast to us. If you had to have underground railroad word of mouth uh, in order to find out and to know. Well, you know, and I'm glad to have that conversation and share the experience because, you know, now we have like just so much mass media and so much access to information. And it's um, interesting to hear 
you know, and then I wonder like the impact on the job of other teachers, because my aunt Vini, I think, is a couple years behind you in school at Jackson State. And they just talked about, you know, the different um, movements and the student nonviolent coalition coming through to school. And that was kind of like a network of how they maintain the information. But if you were already working in teaching in order to maintain your job, like how were you restricted as an educator in being involved? Because I know you guys as educators had you came up in a time where teachers couldn't wear pants. Women teachers couldn't wear pants. We had to sign. We had to sign a statement saying that we had never joined an organization like the NAACP or any other civil rights movement. We that was that was a part of getting your job that we had to sign that. If you can believe it, yes. and I, I believe it. And I, I think it's important to expose that and talk about that. A couple of my friends and I, oh, we were going to vote. We went marching down there and this old white man who probably could not read <laughs> exactly. gave us a test and told us we didn't pass it. And I know darn well that I passed it. And I was so disgusted. That's why once I left Mississippi, I have not missed a vote. I don't care what it is. Uh, <laughs> I vote. If it's the time to vote, I vote. Because that was so disappointing. And then it was really you felt helpless and, you know, you were in tears because you knew that that man couldn't read as much as I, couldn't read as well as I. I don't think he could probably, because what he says he used in for sat he said i sat down something oh and we just we just had to walk away you know we just had to walk away but yeah you know it's interesting because i had the same conversation with um my aunt, my aunt Claire seen when I was down back home in the summer she had told me about when she was working in Natchez she had gone to vote a similar thing happened to her she passed the test but then her friend didn't pass uh, probably the same man. Yeah. <laughs> it was in Natchez. <laughs> oh, probably. Probably the, probably the same man. We yeah, need no, that's, that's the interesting thing, too. Um, Because Jackson State was not at Natchez when you went. It was in Jackson at the time that you attended, right? Oh, that's too far back, Patricia. That, okay, I'm just checking. Back. You know, I know my college history, but I, I'm not uh, 100% sure when we... Okay. It was in Jackson, yes. I, I taught in Natchez. Okay, because she went to Natchez to teach too, so that's that's why you know I was just curious about that. Mm. Okay, Mama, civil rights for you because you were a kid as this was happening. Okay, and as I say, I was very sheltered, and by me graduating in '70, I went to Alcorn, you know, which was out there. I got home like Thanksgiving and Christmas, maybe, but um, so the four years that I was at Alcorn was when the transition was really taking place here in Forest. And I did not learn about the things that went on with the integration of the schools until after we started having reunions. People had gone on to college and come back home and told about their experiences that, you know, they had. And, you know, our coach, Bo Clark, was just number one. And he had to become assistant coach. And all of the football players, um, you know, they were just put in the background 
you know, we didn't have quarterbacks in those important positions and that kind of thing. So, um, but some of them have told some some very harrowing tales about, you know, the things that went on. But, and for me, when I left Alcorn, I started, my first three years of teaching were at still an all-Black school. It was at North Scott that was from first grade through ninth grade. So it was like seven years after college before I was placed in an integrated school situation for real. So by, by that time, things were totally different because like I said, you are eight, nine years into this process where if your kid attended public school, you were in an integrated school. But, um, you know, that was still backlash from the parents. I knew I taught reading. And of course, you know, they think black folk can't teach reading. Does anybody else teach reading other than you? No, I'm the only reading teacher for fourth grade. Your kid has to come through me. <laughs> and they are all 100% better for it. I absolutely know that. I mean, I experienced your uh, teaching as a as a kid. So I already know that nobody does it better. And they all did have to go through you. So that's that's great. Um Aunt Laura, you mentioned moving to Michigan and not being interested at all in returning, which kind of brings me to the next um, question I want to talk about is the Great Migration, um, just from your perspective, and then your choice to leave versus Mama talk about why you chose to not migrate. Well, you know, growing up, Patricia, I uh, loved to read. And I used to read stories and I always from a little girl knew, oh no, I'm getting out of here one way, (laughs) one way or another. I think in my mind, I had pictured going to New York, but let me go back to reading. I have a story about that. You know, we didn't have a black library. There was a library, black kids could not go. And I was, I love to read, and uh, we had a, Pat, what was Miss Fortune's position? I, I can't think of it off the top of my she head. She was a home demonstration agent. It was uh, the extension service. Their purpose was to go into the rural areas and teach the people about farming and home economics and, you know, just building better community and they would have community meetings one Saturday out of every month, you know, to right. promote and I used yourselves. Mama made sure I went. But anyway, Miss Fortune knew the white lady who was a librarian. She would go up to the library and the back door, and that librarian would give her books, and she would give them to me so that I could read, but we couldn't go in the library itself. And I guess that lady probably was putting her, that I have to say, I don't even know who the white lady was, the librarian. She was probably putting her job on the line to do that, but she would do that. She would give her books. But now to get back to my point, I was always aware that it was a big world out here and I wanted to see it and be a part of it. 
So I had always from, from a young person determined, oh no, I'm leaving Mississippi. And I did. You know, it's funny. We're similar in that way, right? Um, oh, I, you, I always say you're more like me than Lorelai. My daughter is. Yeah, no, and it's funny that I'm so that I'm so much like you and have that energy because it's the same thing from a young age. Nobody told me, nobody influenced me, but I knew that yeah. yep, this is not gonna be it for me. And 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 I know that my mom is different in that way. And I just think, you know, that's just genetics and just ancestral stuff that just get passed on. My mom talks about it all the time, how people just things get they inherit stuff that they don't know they inherited. But I inherited that desire and fire to be away from oh from yeah always no, okay no i am not i am not staying here no i am leaving and i i was determined and i did and i'm i'm happy for it i'm not it was a good decision i think but yeah. now me i would credit laura with me staying here because what from the time i was eighth grade i started visiting back and forth and spending time with them. Therefore, I had been exposed. I had been out there and, uh, you know, saw what it was like. And by that time, it was possible, you know, for us to have a better life here in Mississippi. Also, our parents were aging. You know, they were old when I got here. But then by that time, they were really aging. And, you know, everybody else had, had gone away and I was the one that was here at home. And um, the same thing, once I married and moved into Midway, all of the older people here, children had fled. So there was a need for someone to be around, you know, and I just literally helped with the aging people in you know my home community and out here so i thank god put me where i needed to be and well, so I that had, always happens i had been out there and i had seen you know what was there and she said she wanted to go to new york i read enough about new york that wasn't me i never wanted to be there because i could just see myself standing in the street looking up at all these skyscrapers oh my god which way do i go but you know, and, and I've, I've been very happy with them. I have not regretted my decision not to leave. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I can appreciate having the experience of spending a significant amount of time of my adulthood in Mississippi and then being elsewhere um, at the same time. But, I, and I understand like that perspective and I think it's important that- well, you know, Let me just say thank you to Pat. <laughs> Absolutely. Because she did take good care of the family. <laughs> um, so we talked a lot about like teaching your college experience. And at the time that you guys went to college, there was only black college options for you guys um, at that time. And is there anything you want to add to your college experience that you haven't already shared? Well, uh my college experience, well, first of all, it was, on the one hand, always, where am I going to get the next check from? How am I going to get through? That was, that made it hard. But because I like to study, 
that part I enjoy a lot because I, I like learning. And I think our, I, I will say having all black teachers, they looked out for us. If you were behind, they were willing to push you forward. And it was a good experience. I never had a white instructor until I went to grad school. That was my first grade. Well, and that's, a, oh, this is something else about Mississippi that a lot of people didn't know at the time, that if you majored in something, if you wanted to take major in something or take a class in something that the black schools did not offer, the, the Mississippi would pay your tuition uh, at another school. I know uh, that's how I ended up leaving Mississippi. I was I wanted to go to library school where they didn't have a black one in Mississippi. And so I took some classes and they paid for it. And, and uh, that was how I got into library science because they paid for it. And that was the first time that I had a white instructor. I was already, you know, that was, that was grad school. But now that was an interesting little thing about Mississippi. I think a lot of people didn't know. And then this is just a little sidebar, but I met a couple here who were from Mary's hometown, my husband's hometown. And they both majored in, I don't know if it was really something they wanted, they majored in engineering and uh, social work. Well, no black schools in Mississippi offered that. And so they got their tuition free by going to Tennessee State because the state would pay for it if it was not. But that was not, at least it was not well known to me at the time. I didn't know, I didn't find out about it until later. Well, you know, I didn't learn that until I had that conversation with somebody yesterday. They were talking about their family in Florida. Florida had that same kind of thing. So I guess it might have been a Southern state thing that if you want higher education beyond, you know, what you your your bachelor's, then the state would pay to send you elsewhere up north because they were saying New York. It might have been Miss McKenzie that I was talking to that their family was that the state paid for them to go away to grad school. I think that happened to a lot of my Jackson State professors. Um, Dr. Lackey went away and then came back to Jackson State. I was 40 before I realized that too. All of the older people that I knew who had a master's or higher degree came from places like Iowa, Ohio, and you know, just unheard of universities outside of Mississippi. That's why they were not granting them here and they were paying for you to go way out there. Uh huh. Up there to get your higher degree because they weren't, they weren't going to do it. Right. I, 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 I don't, I, to be honest with you, I don't know how I found out about it, but now I'm so old, I can't really remember, but I found out about it and I, they did it for undergrad too. Cause the, the, the uh, friends that I'm talking about, they did their undergrad because they, they majored in something that was not offered in the black schools in Mississippi. And so the state would pay for them, pay their, uh, tuition and the same thing for grad school. If you wanted something that well, you couldn't. Jackson State at that point didn't offer grad degrees, and so you had to go out of state, and they would pay. That's yeah. how much they didn't. That's how much they didn't want to sit in the class with us. That's why Mississippi is on the bottom, trying to keep us down. So I guess it's a form of control. 
And once you had gone out of the state to get those degrees, they were hoping you would stay there. I, I mean, you know, the logical thing would be bring it back and share it and spread it around. You know, they wanted you to stay while you were gone. But yeah, and it's similar to what Laura mentioned too about how when Mega Evers died, it took five days for her right there in Jackson to find out about it. I don't <laughs> yeah. want to say no, that. In Natchez. Natchez to find out about it. But but yeah, it, but it's that though. Like we don't want information to be shared to the masses and we'd wet, we'd rather. And I say all the time, so it's interesting to find out that my experience at Scott Central is only 10 years from removed from the actual forced integration where everybody's kind of like now all in one space. You know, when I started kindergarten in 89, um, they were really only kind of 10 years in to being in that one space together, if that. And just my experience was kind of split half and half, but I often feel like now that I've left and gone and pursued higher education, I feel like, as you said, separate but equal, I feel like once integration was forced, it was more just make everybody dumb. It don't even matter. Like we're not gonna challenge exactly. anybody with anything since we all gotta be here together. Then, and, and maybe, maybe they were never challenging their kids in their schools, but I do feel like when I hear you guys speak, you all had a better education than I was afforded just because of the work that your teachers put in or the fact that this man was being intentional about bringing information into the school in a strategic way to make sure that you guys got that information. Um, so I think like that wasn't happening for me because I can count four black teachers that I had growing up and one was my mom. Like that shouldn't be the case. And well, speaking of that, Patricia, if I can cut in for a minute, I think we have seen the dumbing down of America in the past few years, and we really, really see it. Now, I am amazed at how undereducated a lot of people are. I, I really am. Yeah. I, in the past yeah. few years, I'm just amazed at... Like, you didn't know that? You don't know you can't do that? <laughs> yeah. Really? It, 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 they don't know history. They don't know civics. They don't know very much of anything. And it, it is a sad commentary. The last few years have really opened up. Everybody's talking about what COVID opened up. But it opened up how undereducated America is now. It, it, it's, it's sad. Yeah, because things like COVID, they taught us in basic health. In elementary school, I know third, fourth, and fifth grade, we had health classes. And even in seventh grade, we had health classes that taught basic public health. And we would know better than to do all of these things that are spreading. Yeah, it's, it's sad. Yeah, and so, and that does bring me to like my final question or final thought that I just wanted to hear your perspective on the, um, just where we are right now um, and how eerily similar it is to where we have been. Just what, it, what do you guys think about the future of education and how can we, just for the sake of future generations, 
what what do you think we can do to put us on a better path? Because I agree, we are deserving kids and not just kids in underserved communities. We're deserving all people. Um, Because I just think about my white counterparts and the things that they do and how uninformed some of them are. And I'm like, but you went to Harvard. How don't you understand, you know, basic economic and government structures? So I'm just interested in what you guys think as, you know, retired educators, just with this wealth of wisdom and history. What do you guys think we need to do? Uh, I'll go first, Patricia. Because I am a glass half full. I'm always, my outlook is always, it's going to be better. Uh, I know it can get better. But right now, I'm beginning to, I, I really, I really wonder. I, I have a lot of doubt about where, where we are and where we're going. And looking at, I'm out, I'm totally out. You know, and I've been out for a few years now, so I have no real knowledge of what's going on in the schools. But looking at the, the the this past year, I think this past year is going to be a lost year. I don't know how long it'll take to catch up. The only good thing I can say about it is that for the most part, everybody probably stayed where they were. If you were, you know, you know, you know what I mean? The the black kids didn't get any further behind than they already were because the white kids didn't get any further ahead. So I think that everybody is staying, but I think it's it's kind of been lost. But I think we need to do more teaching of government and history and civics and basics instead of teaching for tests. In the last 20 years, they have put way too much emphasis on the test. You used to learn so that you could pass the test, not teach the test so you could just pass the test. You have kids who can pass the test, but they don't know a darn thing because that's all they concentrate on. I I don't think, to me, I was very sad to see when they placed so much emphasis and they put teachers under so much pressure to get the kids to pass certain tests. And it, and I understand the principles and because if you don't, you don't get the money. So there's a lot of, pre- and I, I wish we would could drop that and get back to just teaching for knowledge so we'll know instead of teaching to pass the test. And I know colleges are so expensive now that all the kids want to have the top grades because they want to get money to go to college. So there's a lot involved. I think we need, I think we need to have more educators deciding what education should be about instead of politicians deciding and they don't know what it's about. Like here in Michigan, they took some of our schools here in Detroit. They took about half the schools and they turned them over to the state. Of course, that was part of that was to break the union, which it did. But the schools didn't improve at all. When they didn't improve, now they put them all back. (laughs) They put them all back in. They did not (laughs) get any better when they were under state control. In fact, they got worse. And now they have put them all back. We have one big school system again. But for a few years, 
about half the schools that I knew as DPS schools were something else, but now they're all back. So I think we need more decisions need to be made by educators. Let me just say that. And then I'll, I, I can get on that high horse and stay there for days. I'm laughing because this is exactly what I just said in my interview today. They asked me about equity and what's in the way. And I said, the people who are making decisions are policymakers and not educators. I said the exact same thing. That's how much alike we are. And we don't even be like spending that much time together. It's so funny. Mama, what about I think that we need to go back to some of the old ideas in a new way. I majored in home ec. Uh, and at the time, people looked at home ec as cooking and sewing. No, it was more than that. It was home, maintaining a home, and the economics of living an adult life. Um, we had to spend six weeks in a house. Um, during that six weeks, you had to run that house. Bills, budget, um, making and preparing the meals. Uh, you know, furnishing the house and all of the things involved in maintaining a house and, you know, staying within that budget of it and what do we call it, make do. You know, take nothing and make something out of it. Um, and Lauren mentioned civics. While they plan with the Constitution, test them. In Mississippi, they pretended to test us on the Constitution, go in the Senate, go in the House of Representatives, test them. Obviously, they wouldn't pass. So that's some of the basic things that have fallen by the wayside, like she say, teaching to test. Here in Mississippi, we have hundreds of people scoring over 30 on the ACT because, you know, that's rather than the SAT, they look more toward the ACT. If you coaching and teaching them from sixth grade, of course, by the time you're a senior, you're going to score 36. But are you a knowledgeable person about anything off those pages? So, you know, we can look at it and, and, you know, we can preach sermons about these things, but it is the basic. And I know you have to do it in a different way. I knew when, you know, it was time for me to get out of the classroom. But I, those last years, I had to adjust. I had to listen to the young teachers. I had to listen to the pupils and let them teach me. But somehow, you have to instill those old-fashioned values and ideals in them, but just do it in a new and different way. Pat, yeah, I think a good example of that is that uh, legislature from legislator from Mississippi who said you all were going to succeed from the union instead of oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> from exactly. the union exactly so, so this has been a wonderful conversation one. Um, I hope that the that my Ron Brown family and my listeners get an opportunity to kind of hear like where my passion 
comes from when I think about education and when I think about the future of education, and when I think about the work that I do um, with kids is because of these women here. Um, and this is just my mom and aunt on my mom's side of the family, but there's a whole other side of aunts that I have that are educators as well, because as you all know, when they went to school, that's all you could essentially go to school for. And if you majored in something else, like Laura mentioned here, you had to go out of state. But um, I want to open it up to anybody that has questions. I know Ms. Staten said that she has some questions before we go, because I think we got about 15 minutes before everybody's supposed to go back to the main room. If y'all have questions for my guests, just um, hit the hand raise feature and I'll call on you guys. Um, to answer those questions. And anybody who joined late, this whole thing has been recorded, so I will be sharing it as well. Ms. Staten, go ahead with your question. Yes. Hey, 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 how are you guys? Um, Ms. Patty and Ms. Claiborne, I just, you guys have been, I was just glued. I was going to go to one other room and then I couldn't go. And I was like, you know what? There's just so much stuff that you guys were saying that we did not know. And I guess maybe my question to you all um, would be, what advice would you give? You know, I won't say I'm that young, but a young foreign language teacher in the sense of, um, it's, a, it's a different day and age, and for us, foreign language, I teach Spanish. And so that's just um, something where I would say that's been a little difficult to try to um, help see, help my boys and my students see the value, especially African-American students, in teaching a foreign language. I get a lot of, we can't do that, we can't speak that. You know, they come here, they learn our language. So maybe what, what advice would you give? Um, you know, I am African-American, I'm not mixed with anything, but you know, I tell them that they can do it as well. So what advice would you give to kind of push that for them? Because I, I wanna continue to inspire them to, to speak a foreign language. I can give you, uh, my daughter is a dentist and she works at a clinic where um, this mostly Hispanics. And she has, she did take Spanish in high school and in college, but she has had to go back to school to learn Spanish. And it has come in really handy. And this is just a sidebar, but we were traveling. We went to Spain and we were lost. And she spoke to the uh, to a man on the street. We asked, you know, to help us. And because she spoke Spanish, he turned around and walked us to where we had, we were trying to find a restaurant. He walked us there and opened the door for us. And he did that because he was so amazed that she could speak Spanish. So you never know, as I, I would tell you, you never know. You don't know what you're going to do and where you're going to be. And there are so many uh, different groups in, in America. Now, we, we really do have a lot of Hispanics, and I think Spanish is, a, is good to know. So for me, I keep saying change, old stuff in new ways, back when it, I know about foreign languages being taught, it was from the basics and um, just the fundamentals. But mm -hmm. in my years of studying, like two, three years ago, I walked into a Spanish classroom that was being taught in a way that it was applicable to your everyday life. Mm -hmm. uh, like going in a restaurant and reading the menus and mm -hmm. your clothing and just 
everyday things that you're going to use, whereas my knowledge of learning a foreign language, you're so busy getting the fundamentals, you don't see how this is helpful to you. Grammar, a lot of grammar probably is what they, I would say, but but to make it in context, a lot of grammar basis, how they used to teach it, but they're telling us to switch that too. So that helps. That's very, very helpful because that's the best I can do at this point. He's trying to put it in a context that is useful to them so they can see the value in it um, outside of just the textbook because I'm trying to kind of trying to get away a little bit from that. So yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Staten, for that question. Um, Dr. Lakes, I see you're the other person with your hand up. What question do you have for my Aunt Lara and my mama? And look, I'm going to say Aunt Lara because Tumani done already texted me and said your country is coming out. So you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> That's why I got on because I wanted to, you know, ask a quick question about uh, Mama Patty and Aunt Lara. One, first. You know, I admire anybody who comes from Mississippi because I'm from Atlanta. And so the, the South is running education as always. Um, but I wanted to ask um, ask you guys really about like, how do you see, and even I think you just said it, like about like the same old stuff coming back and being reinvented. When I talk to my, my grandma and some of my uncles who were educators and principals, they often talk about like, oh, y'all are calling it restorative justice, but we had family circle all the time. Like, that's how we started today. Like, this is how we did. Like, and when I sit back and I really think about it, I'm like, well, if you, restorative justice is about family and, and righting wrongs and all of that and sitting in the circle and making sure everybody has accountability. And I thought about it, I was like, well, that's what you would do in the family. And they literally always say, like, this is what happened when you were in schools regardless. Like, your your teachers and your, and, and your parents were, were, almost friends, like they knew everybody. And it's not just a small, you know, town mentality. They was like, no, this is just how schools work because we were all there for the benefit of the students. So I just wanted, you know, to jump in and ask really about like, how do you guys see the same things replaying out? Like that you guys grew up doing and was just like good teaching and learning that now, you know, they slap a bow on it and, and want to <laughs> monetize it and, and be a consultant for it now. Laura, I'll let you take it, Pat. Um, I, me, I take everything back to the church. And you know, like you said, that's what the family did all the time. You gathered around that table and you had prayer. And um, I can remember in elementary school, we did devotional every morning. You know, we didn't have a name for it or whatever, but we, we had a song, a pledge, and a prayer before starting the day but and your uh good morning deal that you do is like your parents say it's the same old thing but just in a different way yeah and mama you actually got a chance to come to one of our morning meetings a couple weeks yeah, ago so yeah that is definitely one of the things that has um come back around um in what we're doing and the way that we're operating when i think about ron brown i do think that we are creating the experience that my that my mom and my aunt had in school before um segregation so i'm happy to be at ron brown because we do get to restore some of the ways in which our community learns best so i'm grateful for that um principal hunt your hand is up so i'm gonna come to you for this next question 
Yes. Um, yeah. Hello. Um, I, I, your mother's last name. I, I, I missed it. If um... my mom is the Odom. Odom. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. So I, I don't have a question. Just a couple of comments. Um, first of all, thank you um, for raising Miss Odom for bringing her to this point. Um, she is a force to be reckoned with, you know, just take the day she had today. I was just thinking, you know, Jackson already knows, you know, I was stuck in my office um, in meetings all day. Miss Miss Odom was in at least three or four of them. She had two grad school interviews running this podcast and who knows what else she's going to do after that. But I definitely wanted to say just what Odom said. She fit. She feels like we're recreating the experience of what you all went through. And I. I truly um, believe that. I know that. My last school, I was a principal of a Rosenwald school. And okay. I, I don't know if familiar with that. Okay. Okay, good. I'm so with them, yes. Okay. So it's just like, you know, Ro Rosenwald, um, you know, he partnered with um, the daughter of Sears Roebuck, you know, going mm -hmm. a philanthropy mission to build schools that were the mm -hmm. exact same. But when, when you were mentioning that, and my school, Winston-Salem Prep, where I came from, um, my father graduated um, during segregation from the first school I was principal in in 1966. You know, I found my father um, in a yearbook just searching um, one day in the library on some old stuff. And so, you know, that that school, it, it meant a lot to me, but I realized there was nothing I could do to bring it back, to restore it to the glory and pride, you know, that it once had. And I realized my dad told me that in a roundabout way. He didn't want to discourage his son from being principal. He said, but you know what? We didn't know how good we had it. Right. And in public education, it will never be the same again. And, you know, so I, I do feel that there are a few places that that we can consider the Mecca, you know, that um, that we can come full circle to, you know, when you all had teachers who, you know, they stayed on you about everything. It, it, the, your teachers, your principal, guidance counselors was just an extension of your parents. And that's what Ron Brown feels like. And this is what a family reunion feels like. You know, you all dropped the knowledge um, on us today and I and I just appreciate it. Um, so th thank you. It, it, it was just great listening to um, you, Miss Odom, and to you as well, Miss Claiborne. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. But to me, education is like when you go to a segregated school or an HBCU, it's like everybody wraps their arm around you and, and it's just like one big warm hug for real. And it is to ensure that you are successful that way. Yep. I agree. So I thank you both for um, agreeing to have this conversation with me on such short notice. I know I just asked y'all on Monday and I'm just so grateful that you both, you know, took the time to share this knowledge with my school community so people can kind of see um, my background and my history. And, and I call this living through history because you guys are living through history. Like you're making- Don't go too far with that. Yeah, because we don't like to be reminded of this age. <laughs> Listen, if I got look, if I have to be reminded, look, we all gonna we all gonna do it. We all gonna get older. But I'm just so grateful um, to have both of you, and I'm grateful that both of you came through and shared your um, experiences and insights and knowledge with um, the people. And 
Um, this was good. This is definitely, it did feel like a family reunion. Um, I dropped the link in the chat if y'all can see it. Um, everybody's going back to the main room. If you guys want to come join that meeting, that link is in the chat too. Um, so to all the guests who joined the room, thank you guys for coming in and listening to the conversation. I'm going to um, stop our recording now so that it can convert and save. Um, and you guys can start joining the main room. Okay. Thank you much. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the P. Michelle podcast to be young, gifted, black and female. Please head on over to Instagram and follow me at P. Michelle podcast and follow my nonprofit at PNP Helping Hands. Thank you for taking this journey with me and I look forward to sharing more tips and tools to keep you sane and healthy.